can have a seat. If you look up the screen, there's going to be a video. because of the price your son paid, and we are so grateful and excited about that. Lord, we're got a people that fully deserve an eternity separated from you, but you wrapped yourself in flesh. God, and you died for the sins of mankind, Lord, and you, you rose again from the dead. And you've made us free. 
God, free to strive and to struggle in this life as we pursue conformity to the image of your son. And so over the next few moments, Lord, as we, we dive into what it means to, to live the good life, God, I pray that you would give us understanding, Father, and God, and that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to live the life that you've called us to live in Christ, forgiven and free. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good. That's how the Bible, um, that's how God described uh, Adam and Eve when he created them, good. And not, not our definition of good, not, not the way that we use the word to, to describe our, our favorite restaurant or, or one of our favorite movies. It's, it's God's good. It's God's definition. Adam and Eve were created and God saw that it was good. And not only that, but because they were good, they, they enjoyed and they delighted in God fully and completely. That's goodness at its fullest, isn't it? However, as, as we read about this historical account in Genesis, we, we encounter the, the dreaded Genesis chapter 3. And, and, and in Genesis 3, we, we see man shift away from being an ally of God to, to an enemy of God because of sinful disobedience to God's command. You see, in the beginning, in that garden, Adam and Eve, they, they weren't tainted at all by, by original sin. They actually had the capacity to, to obey God or to, to disobey God. And unlike Adam and Eve, since, since the fall of man, we're all born into sin and we lack the, the capacity to obey God. According to God's word, our, our wills are in complete bondage to our sinful nature and our affections must be turned away from sin and toward the person and work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God came as a man, Jesus Christ, who was active in creation and equal to God the Father, but different. The second person of the Trinity, he came to restore Man's fellowship with God the Father. And God accomplished this by imputing or casting our transgressions onto Jesus Christ and pouring his wrath out onto Jesus on the cross. And three days later, thank God for this. According to the Holy Word, the Bible, Jesus Christ was resurrected, not resuscitated. He never died again. He was resurrected from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, and because of this steep sacrifice, the righteousness of Christ is imputed or is casted on to those who will repent and believe this gospel message. And once you've repented of your sins and, and you've embraced Christ, as the video's telling us, you're, you're free to struggle and to toil in this beautiful mess of a Christian life. You are free to strive toward this, this purity that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. That's the context of this entire sermon series. Christ has freed you to struggle and toil. And you're not edified toward being pure because it gains you some access to God the Father. As a believer, you stand completely justified and righteous based on the person and work of Christ, not because of your own merit. I want you to picture the, this Christian life as a, 
a type of Garden of Eden, if you will. Not exactly like the Garden of Eden, but a, but a type of Garden of Eden. That through the sacrifice of Christ, God has restored in believers a beautiful relationship with himself and the ability to live in obedience to his word. This is, this is the good life that we're going to talk about this morning. However, we're still in the presence of sin. And even though its power has been broken, so... We, we still struggle with sin. So until then, we, we, we settle our gaze toward, toward Jesus Christ and we deny ourselves and we take up our crosses and we follow hard after him. And I'm so thankful for the day that God will make all things new and destroy for us even the capacity to sin or disobey him. And that day will come as A.W. Tozer, a pastor not too long ago who's, who's been deceased for a little while. But the day will come when... There's, everything is gone. There's nothing left. And praise will saturate the atmosphere. Isn't that a, an incredible truth? When everything's gone, there's nothing left. Praise will saturate the atmosphere. But until that day, church, we're called and we're saved to, to as I said, toil and strive toward living a free life in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so let's get to that struggle this morning. Look with me. Um, or turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In these two verses, we see a great summarization on the doctrine of sanctification, meaning that, that you've been made holy in Christ, and you're called to con continue to grow and to strive for holiness by cooperating with the, with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who's now dwelling in you, Okay. And the question I want to answer this morning, or questions rather, is why should we live the Christian life? Why should we do it? And in doing this, I, my aim is to answer how do we live the Christian life? Okay, so why do we live the Christian life, if you're taking notes, and how do we live the Christian life? I want to uncover the why and spend time on that this morning because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can answer that question. And we all know people and come into contact with people who who are not Christians. There may be somebody in this room this morning who, who's not a Christian, and, and we, we know non-Christians who, who do live quiet, good, and moral lives, at least by our standards, right? There are many people in this world today who are concerned about living a good life. Many people who are not Christians give to charities. They, they, they help the poor. They feed the hungry. They clothe the naked, and they really do some great compassionate acts. And we live... Um, in a humanistic age, if I can borrow the definition from Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, we live in the midst of people who argue that you can live a good life without being a Christian. They say that it's about time people grew up and began to, to think and, and to cease to cling to this nonsense about, about God and an unseen world and that all this talk of a so-called incarnation and redemption and all the rest of it. It says it's just hogwash. They say that we, we don't need it anymore. We're, we're no longer primitive. Christianity was our first attempt at understanding and morality, but it wasn't our best attempt. 
We're now enlightened. We're now educated. It's time to, to grow up and to move on. And there exist in our, in our families and our friends uh, these types of people who live good and decent, generous lives according to our standards and say, see, I'm a, I'm a decent person, yet I'm not a believer. Therefore, I don't need Christianity to live this good and decent life. And we can, and as Christians, we should acknowledge the fact that there are people who are not believers who do good things, compassionate acts, who, who live by our standards, good, decent, moral lives. That's very evident. However, there's no basis whatsoever for why moral and good non-believers behave the way that they behave. They may appeal to, to common good or to human solidarity, but, but our culture dictates that definition, doesn't it? Now, apart from the infinite, we appeal to the finite for truth, and that's a dangerous place to be. And the very unusual thing is why Christians may say amen to what, what I just mentioned. We oftentimes, most unintentionally, live our lives this way ourselves. We commend ourselves toward good works apart from the gospel of God, and we treat this, this Christian life as if one day we'll stand before God hoping that our, our good deeds will somehow outweigh our bad deeds and that we'll des deserve a spot in eternity. And so Christians a lot of times guilt themselves toward good works, and because of that, our good works are no longer produced out of a gratefulness of the gospel, but rather out of some religious obligation. My wife, she... Um, she loves home projects, loves home projects, wants to do them all the time. And, and because of that, there comes the expectation that I'll partner with her in that endeavor. And amen. amen. <laughs> and uh, you know, her idea of a date night is uh, a real romantic time, uh, uh, just a meal, romantic dinner, uh, candles lit, and then we immediately get our work clothes in on and we go replace the windows. Uh, that's kind of my wife's idea of a, of a romantic night out or whatnot. And, and I'm not like that. You know, they, just to help you get a little bit of a better glimpse into to my home life, the, uh, uh, for Christmas a couple of years ago, her grandparents bought us um, some presents and mailed them to us. And, uh, and I opened my, my presents up, and uh, there were some books by some of my favorite authors, and it was very nice and considerate. And, uh, and then Braden opened her gifts up, and they were power tools. And um, I'm like, wait a minute, like something, I think we got the, the gifts mixed up. Like, I think I'm supposed to have that so, to sit in my garage. The, um, but Brayden, she wishes that I, was, I would partner with her more in those endeavors. And, and the reason why I don't is I tell her, babe, if I did it, it would be out of some obligation to you, not because I love you. Therefore, I don't want to do a disservice to you by just doing it out of, out of obligation. So I just don't do it all together. That's all right. And so, so anyways, I, I use that excuse, but right, we, we kind of approach our Christian life that way, right? As, as we, we try to, to um, commend ourselves toward these good works out of some obligation rather than out of this, this love and this gratefulness for, for God and what he has done in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and the apostle Paul in this passage of scripture, he directs our attention to the, the unchanging why uh, answer to the uh, to the question, why should Christians live a good moral life? 
And in doing so, he also teaches us how to do it. Remember, um, in our Roman series this past summer, Pastor Shani took us through uh, each chapter of Romans, and, and we grew to understand that the first 11 chapters consisted of theological instruction written by the Apostle Paul. And, and once we arrived at chapter 12, we began to receive the charge about what to do with the first 11 chapters of this book uh, of biblical doctrine. And, uh, so look closer with me at this Romans passage in, in chapter 12. Look at the first part of verse 1 with me. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In your notes or in your Bibles, I want you to circle with me the word therefore. Make a note about that. This word is important because Paul's not only reminding the reader of all the previous content of that letter, okay, but he's saying, he's saying this, because of the previous 11 chapters, sin, Jesus, salvation, okay, uncovering all these different doctrines, your life should look like this, okay? The word therefore, it, it, it transitions us, it transitions the reader um, to action, okay? Without the therefore, we're just gaining a bunch of theoretical knowledge, not knowing what to do with that knowledge, okay? And so the Apostle Paul is saying, here's biblical doctrine, now do something about it, all right? Many times we fail to understand that God's Word said should transition us to action and moral behavior. The use of the word therefore, it indicates that we're to strive toward obedience and purity because we are grateful for the gospel, not as an effort to justify ourselves before God. We're to strive for obedience and purity because we're grateful for the gospel, not as an effort to justify ourselves before God. It's crucial for you to, to grasp this and to remember it and to remind each other of this because Christian go, Christians go a, about this, this, this action part, this, this whole process of sanctification and living out the gospel in our lives. We go about it all wrong, don't we? We, we, go, we go about it, as, as I said earlier, as, as if it's some obligation. And then a lot of times, Christians, we get into this discipleship with people who have claimed to... Um, uh, the truths of Christianity, but their lives aren't producing any fruits, and we keep, we keep trying to disciple, disciple, disciple them, and we kind of detach the gospel somehow from discipleship, and we're trying to disciple lost people, or we detach the gospel in our own lives from discipleship, and we're trying to do those good works apart from that gratefulness from the go for the gospel. There's a... Uh, um, an old pastor uh, from the 1600s, his name was Walter Marshall. He was a, a British Puritan pastor. And he wrote a book on sanctification. And, uh, and he struggled with bouts of spiritual depression because he was trying to make uh, personal righteousness the basis of his dealings with God. Uh, when he submitted to the righteousness of God found only in Jesus, he found holiness, he found peace, he found joy in the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and he wrote this book called the Gospel, the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And I can never commend this book enough uh, to brothers and sisters in the Lord because it really it unpacks the role of works in the, life, in the lives of Christians. And we're going to keep talking about that here in a minute, so I don't want to get too far into it. But he says this in this book. In order to get to the works part of your life, in order to get to the sanctification part uh, of your life, says, you have to be totally assured that you are reconciled to God and accepted by Him. You have to be absolutely sure that the chasm sin has caused between you and God has been completely filled and that you are now totally under His love and favor. This is one of the great blessings and results of being justified by faith in Christ. Your sins are forgiven, righteousness is credited to you, and you are totally reconciled to God. This is a great mystery to many, 
but it's nonetheless true. You have to be reconciled to God and justified, which includes both the forgiveness of your sins and the crediting of Christ's righteousness to your account before you can truly obey the law of God. Once you are justified, you're truly empowered to keep the law of God. And how are we empowered? We're, we're empowered by that deposit of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to live the good life. Look at the next part of verse 1 with me. The Apostle Paul uses the language, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And worship here is probably better translated as, as this acceptable service because this worship in the original language, again, promoted Christian action. Okay, Pastor Sean talked a little bit about that last week. But this type of language that the Apostle Paul is using, it would have made the early church think about temple sacrifices. Okay, there were still the Jews and the Gentiles. There were still uh, Christian Jews now who were still clinging to some of their... Uh, uh, the Old Covenant, some of their Judaism. And, and, um, and so uh, remember, the, 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 in the Old Testament, God established uh, animal sacrifices and the regulations surrounding them and how the Israelites were, were to go about offering those sacrifices. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go home and read the book of Leviticus, then fall to your knees and thank God for Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, I read that book sometimes and I'm like, hey, we got to do what? Like, this is what's required? This is what we have to do? Like, all of this, Lord? And then I'm reminded that, that, that God is separate. He's holy. He's completely unstained by sin. He's, he's the very definition of pure. His character is, is good because he defines good. His actions are moral because he defines morality. I am finite. He is infinite. I'm too limited to understand God and his ways, and so are you. And I think about that, and I cry out, the burden is, is too heavy. The burden's too heavy, Lord. Some of you may be saying that this morning. God, the, the requirements that you ask of me the burden, it's just, I can't do it. It's too heavy. I can't go on. And God says, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Now embrace my son, Jesus Christ, who carries the load and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in this message, he's saying, hey, guys, you know all those sacrifices that you make to, to Yahweh in the temples? Well, take that a step further because Christ was the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. And because of that, your life should now be a living sacrifice, an act of worship or acceptable service to the Lord who saved you. You no longer need to, to go to the temple to, to offer this worship to the Lord. Your life, your body is to worship the Lord no matter where you are. The word living here is, is a reminder that the spiritual life from God is the, is the, in the new birth is the presupposition of a sacrifice that's acceptable to him. In other words, you, you have to be alive in Christ before you can bring an acceptable worship or service to him. Your Christian sacrifice has in view a, a total life of service to God. Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 when he says... Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, 
For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, you are, therefore be, a new creation. Isn't that an amazing thing? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation, so act like a new creation. That's what Paul's saying here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what normal Christianity, or rather, that's what biblical Christianity looks like. So how do we live as this this new creation in Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 25, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity, but... That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And I love this part, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then he says, you got to remind others to do this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each, of, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You need to go out and tell people about this, for we are members one of another. Be who you are. When you, when you fall in this life of sin, when you fail to, to conform your life to the image of Christ, and I'm speaking to Christians here post-salvation, okay? Christ has saved you. You stand before God justified. And when you live in disobedience, you're not being who you are. You're not embracing your identity. You're embracing your old identity. You're living as like you did before Christ. You are a new creation, Remind yourself of the gospel on a daily basis. Remember the gospel. Remember the sacrifice Christ made. Remember your identity. And you're charged, according to Ephesians 4, to remind your brothers and sisters of their identity. It's the power of community. And so post-salvation, a responsibility is placed on each one of us to pursue holiness and to flee sin by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel and to remind each other of our new position in Christ. And the church has has, um, taken our identity and sin so lightly for so long because of our failure to conform our thought life and mind to the truth of God's word. And because we're terrible at being authentic and biblically careful in our community with one another, even when it makes us uncomfortable. A lot of times we try to live in community, but it can be a shallow one at times. And the Bible seems to emphasize over and over again two aspects of living out the Christian faith. Not necessarily the only aspects, but two big aspects that we're covering this morning is the mind and community. Both of those things, conforming our mind to to God's word and reminding each other to do the same. Look at verse 2 with me in our Romans passage. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first part is do not be conformed to this world. I want you to circle the word conformed. Write the following definition. Just I think I provided you some space in your, in your notes here. Write this definition underneath it. This word conformity, okay, it refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within. 
This, this word refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within. This should not reflect the church. But obviously, the church was in danger of forgetting her identity. That's why the apostle Paul wrote this to begin with. They were, they were in danger of falling into sin, of falling into falsehood, not losing their salvation, but just forgetting their identity, right? And the same is true for you and I now. I want you to think of a man who changes his appearance from day to day and, and year to year. He looks different at work than he does at an, at an evening out. He's shaped by his surroundings. That's the, the danger of conformity, spiritually speaking. That's the danger of, of relative truth. That's the danger of an uninformed mind. Again, this is why biblically solid Christian community is so important. You need brothers and sisters in Christ who remind you of your identity in Christ and challenge you to think biblically. And not just biblically, but, but challenge you to think about right things biblically. That's why we put such an emphasis on small groups and community at Coastal Community Church. When the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was writing to a church who was placed right in the middle of a pagan, immoral city called Corinth. And he charged the, uh, the Corinthian church with this. He said in 1 Corinthians, Do not be deceived. And many of you know this passage. It says, Bad company ruins good, what? Morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. This is quite the rebuke, isn't it? Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. He said, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. God has saved you, and how dare you live like the old self? He saved you, and he has a mission for you, and, that, and you're, not, you're not being obedient to the mission he's called you in because you're living like your old self. People have no, there's people out there that have no knowledge of God. He says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. And worldly conformity is a failure to remind yourself and each other of the gospel, and it hinders your role in the expansion of God's church. Worldly conformity is a failure to remind yourself and each other of the gospel and hinders your role in the expansion of God's church. I've told you this many times, but God's means to bring people to a saving knowledge of the person Jesus Christ is through his local church. That's God's plan. That's God's means. And we're called, just as Paul charged Timothy in, in the book of Ephesians, we're called to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us, to guard the good deposit of the gospel in all areas of our life. And worldly conformity is not an option for the Christian. And if you find yourself in habitual conformity, worldly conformity, and you should probably heed the warning of James that says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless or dead? Hey, if you have no motivation and to live a life pleasing and acceptable to God, there's a good chance you've never encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's transforming. Remember, faith produces works, okay? Works do not produce faith. But these works are, are this, this, this evidence that, that, that God has changed your life with the gospel message. Look at the second part of verse 2. The Apostle Paul, he says, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
I hear for other lives that, that great disconnect from what we profess to the way that we live our lives. What content are you putting in your mind? What content are you putting in your mind? The only way for believers to be conformed to the image of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life is by allowing God's Word to permeate in and through your minds. You must think rightly, biblically. You know, it's, impossible, you know, it's, it's actually possible, not impossible, but it's actually possible uh, to read God's Word wrong. It's possible to even read God's, to read God's Word wrong. We need to understand how to read God's Word. I always suggest, and I keep plugging these books, but if you're interested in learning how to read God's Word rightly, this is a great kind of bird's-eye view of um, how to interpret God's Word. It's not academic feeling. It's not overwhelming. And it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. And I would strongly encourage you, um, as you're learning to take God's Word more and more serious, to, to get this book so that you can understand exactly what the uh, original authors intended for you to understand when you read God's Word. But we must think rightly. We must love God with our minds. In our church circles, we have two types of people. We like to joke about it. We have the heart people and we have the mind people, right? Like I can always tell who the heart people and the mind people are during our music. Like the heart people are all up kind of like this and the mind people are kind of like this. Like I don't I don't know, where is this in the Bible? And they'll grab their Bibles and look through it, right? And so we always make jokes about the difference between the two. But you know, I, a lot of times in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the writers didn't, uh, they didn't divorce the two. And, and we shouldn't divorce the two either. The two are married at all times. If you, if you have one without the other, it's not, it's not biblical Christianity. You can't, you can't take away the heart because all you're left with is a pursuit of, of who can know the most stuff, and you, you can't take away the mind because you're left with falling into falsehood or starting a cult. Church history tells us this story over and over again. The Bible assumes both when the word mind is being used. Holy Christian behavior is a direct result of knowing God and His Word. Holy Christian behavior is a direct result of knowing God and His Word. You can't be conformed to the image of God. You can't worship the way that God's intended you to do unless you know who God is. And you can't know who God is unless you spend time in His Word, understanding His Word rightly. Biblical things about God, His character, what He requires, who He is, what He's done. One pastor says that it's in the mind that our new nature in Christ and our old humanness are intermixed, okay? It's in the mind that we make choices as to whether we will express our new nature in holiness or allow our fleshly humanness to act in unholiness. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have, as believers, we have the mind of who? Christ. What an amazing thing, right? I love to think about like when we read... Um, God's Word, and we see these brilliant men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit that, that had the opportunity to pen God's Word. You know, we have more knowledge than these guys had because they had yet to have a complete closed canon of Scripture. Isn't that crazy? 
Like when Isaiah was writing, he's prophesying about things like that, that are going to happen. He's prophesying about different things. These, these major, these minor prophets are all talking about stuff, but they don't have the full picture yet. And we can look back in hindsight because we have God's completed word, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. We have God's revealed word, his revealed plan, the complete gospel message, and yet we never pick it up. We have the mind of Christ. It's not this this magical thing that we get. It's through careful study of what his word says. Colossians 3, verses 2 through 3 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If our mind is the the hub of our behavior or what we believe, we better carefully nourish it. We better make sure that even the things we label Christian are theologically sound and accurate. We live in a culture that rejects absolute truth and, and embraces what they like to call individual truth, which is just another name for relative truth. In other words, it's, it's up to you to determine what's right for you based off of your feelings. And we do this with our marriages. Well, I'm just not happy anymore, and God desires me to be happy. Therefore, it's better to just call it quits and pursue somebody else. When God's word says in Luke chapter 18 that everybody who divorces his wife and, and, and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. We take the lives of our un- unborn children and we mask it in women's rights saying that it's your body. Nobody can tell you what to do with your body. But God's word says in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God's word also states in Deuteronomy 27, 25, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say amen. Man, we forget to think on the gospel and our new identity and the fact that we're this this new creation when we lustfully gaze at the internet while alone God's word is teaching us in Matthew chapter 5 that everybody who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Even the church is in danger of forgetting the truth of God's word. You know, we can be guilty of embracing relative truth even in our small groups. We've probably, most of you have probably been to a Bible study where we kind of sit around the room and give 10 different interpretations of what God's Word says. You know, there's only one interpretation of what God's Word says, not 10 interpretations. We have to understand the truth of what God's Word is teaching us. We have to understand the Bible rightly in order to inform our belief system. And this should all be done within Christian community. Finally, look at the last part of verse 2 with me. Why should we strive and struggle to uncover the truth of God's word? It says, for this reason, the Apostle Paul says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Dedication leads to discernment and discernment to delight in God's will. You're dedicated by 
through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the, the calls of Christ, to, to this pursuit, this process of sanctification and, and understanding truth. And that leads us to, to having a discerning spirit and, and understanding God's will. And then, and then eventually we begin to delight in the will of God. Our desires are His desires. And we're a people who are constantly, look, constantly looking for God's will for our lives, so much so that we fail to worship God and actually we fail to actually think on His truth. And here in this passage, we're reminded that God transforms believers when we pursue Him with our minds. And He consequently reveals His will for us through the closed canon of Scripture. God has spoken. It was recorded. And we're to look at it honestly and eagerly and correctly toward uh, we're to look toward the Bible honestly, eagerly, correctly to understand His p- plan and His purpose in life for you to reach every tribe, every tongue, every nation with the saving message of Jesus Christ. I read an article by a pastor in Florida named Buck Parsons one time, and in this article he said um, that it's one thing to believe that the Bible is the Word of God but it's another thing entirely to believe and trust the Bible as the Word of God. And my question for you this, this morning is, are you going to believe what the Bible says about your new identity in Christ? Are you going to struggle and strive toward purity for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel? You can bow your heads in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you are so good. And um, we are so grateful that you've reconciled us to yourself and that you've made us free to strive and struggle toward conforming into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that Coastal would be a church that reminds herself of her identity in you and reminds um, others of their new identity, so that we can be most effective for your glory. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.